This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Well, today Peter's going to tell us about his favourite book. I can't wait to hear about that. And also our Toaster Challenge guest is the brilliant actor Cathy Belton, who'll be talking to us about her favourite book and acting and other things. And Enda will be looking at Days of Clear Light, a fetch shrift in honour of Jesse Lindini, which is a celebration of 40 years of salmon poetry. Edited by Alan Hayes and Nessa O'Mahony. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. So Enda, 40 years of salmon press. That's a long time for a poetry publisher to be in business. It is indeed. And it's really beautiful. You can see this book that I'm holding, Peter, Days of Clear Light, a fetch shrift in honour of Jessie Lindenny and in celebration of 40 years of salmon poetry. So congratulations to them. And I know that Jessie herself was really thrilled with this beautiful edition edited by Alan Hayes and Nessa Manny. And also, I think a shout out has to go to Siobhan Houston, who's done so much wonderful design of covers for salmon. And this is particularly beautiful blue cover. Beautiful as well because there's great poetry in here from the likes of Caroline Duffy, Theo Dorgan, Kerry Hardy, Rishan Higgins, Eleanor Hooker. Oh my gosh, the list goes on and on. Michael Longley's in there, Nessa Manny herself. And there's great, there's great work here, Peter. I'm sitting here in my pyjamas actually. It is a real books for breakfast, <laughs> sitting in the bed and reading these beautiful poems. So it's great to get them in the post. And I suspect we might be about to hear one or two. I mean, have you got any, have you, have you picked on something there you might share with us? Yeah, I have. Well, actually, there's there's a host of really great stuff. But just to say as well, just to say about Jessie, I mean, for any of you who don't know, she, she arrived here, I think, in Ireland from America in 1981. And then in 1985, she came up with this brainwave idea of setting up salmon poetry. And uh, she never really stopped from that point on. The very first book that she published was Ava Burke's, actually, her debut, Ganella, in 1985. That was launched by Michael D. Higgins in Galway. It's interesting to remember that far back, isn't it, Peter? And also it's interesting because Michael D. Higgins himself became president of Ireland, as we all know, and he's written a really fine foreword to this book. And he says of Jessie, her eclectic reach her generous nurturing of new talent and her great desire to see the names of writers in print, including new entrants in particular, has made an invaluable contribution in terms of access to Irish literature. And I think, Jesse, it's fair to say, has been brilliant at getting new voices out there, Peter. There's a huge diversity in Salmon Press. I think that's a good thing because diversity is really what it's all about. And if anything, I feel quite energised to face the day this morning. I'll be getting out of my pyjamas soon because this is um, an anthology of of diverse voices, which is brilliant. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no doubt that Sam has made a huge contribution. Um, I mean, it's very important because it is, it is really important that a country like ours uh, can sustain uh, good publishers. And I think we've we've excelled at poetry publishing. I mean, if you think, you think of Gallery, you think of Daedalus and and Salmon, and and others that have come along since. It's it's a very important. Uh, these are all they were all very important initiatives for our literary culture. Yeah, and it's great as well that we have, that we're enjoying ourselves on this podcast, you know, praising the poetry work that's been going on in in this country of ours. But I love this poem by Gillian Clark. You were asking me earlier, do you have a poem? It's called The Singer and the Song. And I particularly love the end of the poem because I think it is really a fine praise of Jessie Lendani and her work. So Gillian Clark says, what powers such labour, language, poetry spell, The touch as you turn a page, the sound and look of a line, its heartbeat, the call of its music, a gleam of meaning in a glittering shoal. 
All praise to Word Woman's years of steady work to set the silenced free and let them speak. So indeed, all praise to Jessie Landeni. Uh, I also think there's great humour in this book. Jessie is renowned for her, her wonderful dogs. And there's a lot of dogs in this book, Peter. Uh, we ourselves love our dog. But there's a great piece by Paula Meehan about her celebrity dog, which does link in with Jessie. And remember, she did that collection of dog poems. So that that's great to read. I enjoyed that. Also, I like at the beginning, Dermot Bulger has the poet as golfer. And he says at the end of that poem, really, I should have been teaching myself because I'm only slowly learning as a poet to realign my posture ease my mind of tension, place myself at the mercy of the unexpected, trust my imagination to find its own tempo and allow the words that come to do the work. And I think that's what Jessie has been good at doing, allowing the poets to do their work. There are poems here in praise of her, but also I love the poems that are just poems. And I think that, that that's really important. And Jesse obviously has allowed, let you know, celebrated poets and let them be themselves. For instance, I loved Patrick Chapman's poem the following year about walking amongst the Turners in the National Gallery and also Moya Cannon's The Orange Rucksack, which goes back 50 years when she was a young girl arriving at Orly Airport and heading into the hot Parisian afternoon. Um, Peter, I thought you wanted to read a poem by Afric McGlinchey. And it's kind of unfair, I suppose, in a way to be kind of take, taking poems at random because there's so much kind of in this. But I mean, it's just one one of the many that caught my eye. This is by Afric McGlinchey. It's Chaos and Creation. The horizon is both this path and the edge of the seas. The epigraph by, by Jesse and Denise is Begin with dogs in a boat, dogs in the snow, an open trunk and a laughing dog. Begin with stone walls, a bog, an ocean. Begin with dogs as an opera, like sonata rain on the pavements. Begin with a song and epiphany. That freedom comes from resistance. Begin with a promise, a flung open door, a fine line. Begin with a series of insights, like the dots and dashes of fireflies. Begin with a wild Atlantic and vocals, maracas, nuances. Begin with a killer hook and end with the bright of surprises. And that was beautiful there. That's Chaos and Creation, a poem by Afric McGlinchey from Days of Clear Light. I think also, Peter, we should say that uh, Jesse has always been really interested in international voices. We, we used the word diversity earlier, but she has published people like Adrienne Rich, uh, Robin Skelton, Jean Valentine, sadly died this year. Um, also Marvin Bell, Ivan Boland, of course. So it's a really fine festschrift. I'd like to just finish this slot really by giving the last word to Jessie herself. The title of the festschrift comes from her poem, Daughter. So we'll finish here and say congratulations to Salmon for lasting 40 years, amazing, four decades. And here are the beautiful lines from Jessie Landeni's poem, Daughter. She knew there were days of clear light when time stretches the air she walked through them, knew that they moved through her. And that was Days of Clear Light, a festschrift in honour of Jesse Lindini and in celebration of Salmon Poetry at 40, edited by Alan Hayes, Anessa Mahoney and published by Salmon Poetry. Peter, what have you got for us today? I think I recognise that book and I'm really interested in hearing what you've got to say about it. Yeah, it's one I've had for a while. It's one of those 
I don't know, almost like magical books that you take with you everywhere. It's called The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelor. I mean, the first time actually I came across this was I was reading a book by Thomas McCarthy back in 1982, his collection of poems, The Sorrow Garden. I think these poems, Bachelor's Images and Professor Bachelor, and they kind of mined images from Bachelor's kind of pioneering works on the imagination and childhood and reverie and the magical spaces of houses. Here's lines from, from Tom McCarthy's poem called Professor Bachelor. Weary with physics, he took the awkward road the flooded pebble lane to childhood where archetypes broke the backs of graphs and instruments couldn't gauge one's mood. So I was kind of intrigued and, and not long after that I got my hands on the Poetics of Space and it was like it was first published back in 1958 in French and uh, interestingly enough Bachelor started off his working life as a postman and he became professor of natural sciences before turning to philosophy and eventually becoming professor of philosophy at the Sorbonne. Ah, I loved hearing that that quote from Thomas McCarthy's poem, Professor Bachelard as well, Peter. Thanks very much. But what, what attracted you to the book? I suppose it's one of these rare books that once you read it, you never quite forget it. It never entirely leaves you, but it keeps drawing you irresistibly back into its world. I mean, it's kind of in some ways that's a hard book to describe because one of its joys is that it defies categorization. You know, you've got poetry, philosophy, psychoanalysis, observation, memory, they all rub shoulders. The book is really, I suppose, an investigation of the soul by means of a grand tour of the interior landscapes of the imagination. So, you know, you've got chapters on drawers, chests and wardrobes, the significance of the hut, nests, shells, corners. And it'd be hard to think of another writer who's who so intensely kind of inhabits inner spaces and how they operate on the imagination. Mm, and I can see how, as a poet, you'd be very drawn to a book like that. Yeah, there's something very childlike about that, isn't there? It's It's like a child's view of the world. Yeah, completely. And childhood plays a very large part in this because it's the child who I suppose most aware and engaged with the spaces of, of home. Also maybe because childhood, you know, poetry, memory and solitude are all part of the same, mm-hmm. uh, if you like, imaginative continuum. I mean, for a child, the house is a dreamscape. The house we were born in is more than an embodiment of home. It's also an embodiment of dreams, Bachelor says. Each one of its nooks and corners was a resting place for daydreaming. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful, isn't it? So we're kind of getting into the territory of poetry now, aren't we? Yeah, and of course it is the poetics of space and he does say at one point that the re- to read poetry is to daydream and it's chock full of quotations from poems mm-hmm. and novels. Mm-hmm. You know, if you open any random page, you'll find beguiling kind of examples of that. One of my favourites is a poem by René Cazelle and it's in a chapter called House and Universe and it goes in the translation a house that stands in my heart, my cathedral of silence, every morning recaptured in dream, every evening abandoned, a house covered with dawn, open to the winds of my youth. And if you like, the book itself is a kind of poem. I mean, it's this, you know, it's a mix of dense materiality and spiritual generosity. It reminds me of a poet like Francie Ponge, the great poet of things and thingness. Yeah, who we featured on a previous podcast. And, and you're a poet of thingness as well, Peter. Your your book, The Thing Is. So I can see why, why you're very drawn to it. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, like we often think of Irish writing as, you know, being preoccupied with place, with the whole tradition of Dean Shanachas and the lore of place names in Irish. But what I like about this is that Bachelor offers us the lore of the micro place, the primal sort of shelter. I mean, he describes himself as a psychologist of houses. And I think the book helped me to understand, as you say, kind of like my own obsession with interior places and with buildings and gardens, both real and imagined. 
And some of this has to do with getting back to the, if you like, perceptual state of the child. I mean, childhood, he reminds us, is certainly greater than reality. It's on the plane of the daydreams and not of facts that childhood remains alive and potentially, or sorry, poetically useful within us. Yeah, I like that idea of childhood being greater than reality. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great notion. But yeah, because yeah, he, he also saw, I mean, he saw the lure of the house as a sort as a search for stability, I suppose, in, in an often very unstable world. I mean, a house constitutes a body of images that gives mankind proofs or illusions of stability. We're constantly reimagining its reality to distinguish all these images would be to describe the soul of the house. It would mean developing a veritable psychology of the house. It must have something to do with solitude as well, do you think? That kind of dreamy imagining. In a way, the world he's describing is pre-social. It's the world of solitary engagement or, or reflection. I mean, the minute you step into a street, you enter the social world of the city, you know, your footsteps join with those of, of the other walkers, or at least that was once the case. Now, of course, it's the opposite. You have this kind of weird dance mm-hmm. of avoidance on the streets. You know, you jump off the pavement if you see anybody else coming. Alas, but in normal times, you know, you're out walking, you take your place in the living stream of the city. And so we have a different kind of relationship with the spaces where family life takes place, where, or, or where we're on our own. You know, if you think of the rooms that have left the biggest impression on you, I mean, they're often like, they're often solitary. I mean, I, I can think of an attic in the house where I grew up and where I spent endless hours reading or playing and a sort of, surrounded by a sort of kind of junk. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure you're the same. You might, if you go back in your, in your, in your memory, you might have a picture of yourself in a space on your own. And it's, you know, that kind of silence and the, and the kind of liberation that comes from being somewhere on, on your own. Yeah, I mean, listening to you there going on about your attic, you obviously had a very privileged childhood, Peter, but with all that junk around and it's uh, it's kind of reminding me of the room we're sitting in right now discussing discussing rooms and discussing. Okay, yeah, this, yeah, this room is a bit of a disaster. I mean, it's tiny and it's an appalling mess and it's crammed with books and, uh, you know, on the shelves, every available kind of position yeah, on the exactly. floor, the windowsills, not to give too much away, but, you know, there's all, you know, paper is, um, I think there's a guitar in there somewhere, you know, paintings, cables. It's kind of like, kind of like going into the cockpit of a plane. Like it's not very comfortable and not very manageable until you actually sit down. But if you, once you sit down, it's actually, it's not too bad. And you think of Francis Bacon, out of, out of chaos comes this type of order, Peter. Is that what you're thinking? This is it. This is it. I also kind of think like this room is like a kind of a hut in a way. And again, um, this book is obsessed with, with, with huts. He talks about the dream of the hut, the idea of, of a refuge. In most hut dreams, we hope to live elsewhere, far from the overcrowded house, far from city cares, you know. So I mean, that's kind of a lockdown thing too, I think, converting our houses or kind of interior spaces into some sort of weird psychic kind of, kind of refuge. You know, obviously some rooms stick with us. And we go into them, don't we? And and they stay there with us. They become part of us. I think so. I think I think I think we carry them around with us. I think places that we are in now, but also rooms that we've abandoned a long time ago that somehow kind of refuse to dissolve. Maybe I'll end with another poem that this book has kind of lodged in my skull. This time it's by a poet called Pierre Seguer. A house where I go alone, calling a name that silence and the walls give back to me. A strange house contained in my voice, inhabited by the wind. I invent it. My hands draw a cloud, a heaven-bound ship above the forests, must that scatters and disappears, as in the play of images. And that was Peter talking about Gaston Bachelard, The Poetics of Space, published by Beacon Press, 1992. Thanks, Peter.
And just it's also it's also in the Penguin Classics if anybody wants to. Yeah, if anyone wants to look for it. Okay, thanks for that, Peter. I really enjoyed that. celibate period. We weren't celibate. What are we? I don't know. We just weren't having much luck, I suppose. I suppose. Conversations were so, they were so intimate. Mm. So passionate, all of us. Well, we were young though. I know, but. Young and naive. But I loved it. I mean, I really loved it. I mean, there were nights I didn't want it to end. That was a clip from The Approach by Marco Rowe, starring Cathy Belton, Dervla Crotty and Ashling O'Sullivan, first produced in the project in 2018 and given a socially distant online outing recently by Landmark Productions again in the project. Well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce today our guest at the breakfast table, Cathy Belton. Cathy is one of Ireland's most gifted and versatile of actresses. She starred in a variety of stage, film, television shows and on the radio. And she's well known for her role as Patricia Hennessy in the crime drama Red Rock for TV3, produced by Element Company Pictures, which earned Cathy two IFTA nominations for Best Actress for her time on the show. Other TV credits include BBC's The Woman in White, Alison Spittle's TV series Nowhere Fast, and Cathy also received an IFTA nomination for Best Supporting Actress for her role in Roy, an Irish animated children's TV series. Cathy has also starred in films such as Philomena, directed by Stephen Frears, and The Tiger's Tale, directed by John Borman. And as a theatre actress, Cathy's credits are numerous and brilliant. I'm thinking of plays like Aristocrats in the Abbey, The Hanging Gardens, The House, John Gabriel Borkman with Alan Rickman or A View from the Bridge at the Gate Theatre. In 2018, we saw Cathy perform at The Project in The Approach, a new play written by Marco Rowe. But just recently in 2021, she came back to this same play again, performing in a live streamed performance of it for The Project once more. And we'll talk some more about that later and the other exciting projects that Cathy is involved in. But first, Cathy, you are very welcome to Books for Breakfast. Um, You've been so busy. But before we get into recent and new work you're involved in, I'd love to know a little bit about where it all began for you. I know you grew up in Renmore, County Galway, and I was just wondering, was acting a big part of your family? And when did you get the acting bug? When What kind of drove you to become an actress in the first place? I'm sure so many people have asked you this, but I'd love to hear. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for asking me on. It's so lovely to talk to you, too. Um, thank you for that. Um, I think being from Galway had a huge influence on why I'm an actress. We were kind of marinated in art, you know, <laughs> between the Galway Arts Festival, Druid Theatre Company. I do remember I came from a great parish called Renmore. There was always pantomimes going on every Christmas that all the children in the parish were involved in. And I was very lucky then. I was quite shy, I think, as a kid. So they do call it the shy man's profession. Mm-hmm. And so my parents sent me to um, a wonderful drama teacher called Rebecca Bartlett. And from there, I suddenly find, found a voice. Maybe I was escaping into characters in order to, to find my own voice. And I knew very early on then, I think it was about 15, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I never wanted to do anything else. It was There was a clear road to Damascus moment. I remember going to see <coughs> Conversations of the Homecoming by Tom Murphy in Druid. 
and coming out onto the lane and realizing I I I want to do what they did in the, on the stage that night. It was oh, a transformative no. moment. Yeah, that's amazing. So Rebecca Bartlett and Tom Murphy set you off on the road. That's brilliant. Um, now, I know we the last thing probably we want to talk about is lockdown, but it has been such a tough time for theatre. And you were in the middle of rehearsals for Little Foxes, a play by Lillian Hellman up in the gate with um, Elizabeth McGovern, well known as Lady Grantham in Downton Abbey when lockdown happened. But then I think miraculously, in a way, other work started to come about. Um, the Abbey Theatre launched Dear Ireland, a series of 50 uh, new monologues commissioned as a rapid response to COVID-19 and they put it up on YouTube and we all loved it and you performed in Blind Boys piece which was a very funny piece and I know you have a Cocker Spaniel just like we do your Cocker Spaniel is called Daisy and is it true that Daisy played a part in it and can you tell us a bit about that and it must have been refreshing and great that this work appeared just when you thought oh it's all gone by the wayside exactly that and uh, everything stopped everything disappeared my year of work disappeared within that first week when we were all told to go into lockdown and then yeah, people yeah. started reinventing I mean I think the theatre community is so resilient and the Abbey did this Dear Ireland piece so myself and my husband Brian became filmmakers here in lockdown <laughs> and by complete um, serendipity Blind Boy had written a piece but he had included a Cocker Spaniel in the piece I don't wow. think he realised that we had a Cocker Spaniel so I kind of said, listen, do you want me to film the Spaniel? And he went, yeah, go for it. So we spent the Easter weekend, myself and Brian and Daisy, um, walking around the streets of empty streets of Dublin, (laughs) filming her at bus stops. And we had to train her to sit at a bus stop. So the poor little beauty still sits at bus stops looking for treats because we needed to film her and stop her at a bus stop. Oh, that's, oh, that's amazing. Well, we've got a mad cocker here and he would no more do that for us. So I think Daisy sounds very well behaved, Kathy. No, she'd do anything for a treat after that. She's on her own. But listen, you also, I know you're very excited about um, the film herself, the Element Merman production. It's written um, by and starring Claire Dunn, directed by Felita Lloyd, and it premiered at the Sundance and Dublin Film Festivals before lockdown. It wasn't it, Cathy? It's a huge critical and popular acclaim. I'm bursting to see it. And I was just wondering, could you tell us a little bit about your role in this film and what drew you to it without giving away too much? Of course, of course. You know, it's all tied up with lockdown again. It was the last film to premiere here in Dublin before Dublin went into lockdown. This was, and the Dublin Film Festival is coming up again. I can't believe it's a year. But I I remember that last night where it premiered here in Dublin and there was an extraordinary reaction. It had premiered in Sundance and got amazing reviews. It's written by the wonderful Claire Dunn and Malcolm Campbell. And it tells the story of a woman who ends up, um, she's in an abusive relationship and has to rebuild her life and find a home. She gets this amazing idea um, Mm -hmm. to build her own home. And it's a metaphor for her building her own life again. I won't tell you what happens, but I play her social worker in it who kind of helps her through the system. So I'm on the side of, you know, the, the system, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to help her fight with the system. I mean, it's it's a small part, but it, it's basically Claire's film and she is absolutely wonderful in it, directed by Philida. And I think it's a real damning indictment of the homeless situation today, our, our complete misdirection with building and and land and and we still haven't found a way of 
sorting the housing development out in this country. It, it's very relevant and, and it's even more relevant now after um, COVID, I think, because it's all about connection and, and, and metal and communities coming together to, to, to help people through, uh, you know, yeah. within the year, isn't that what we've done? We've yes. When will we actually, will, will we as the public get to see it, Cathy? I don't know. And I think at the moment, it's now on general release in America and, and doing brilliantly. And, and it, it's just been long listed for a BAFTA, we heard oh last gosh. week. Um, they haven't given a release date here yet because they want to see what's going to happen with cinemas. Um, so when, yeah. when, I, you'll hear about it when it Oh, I can't wait. It sounds brilliant. And as you said, it's such an important film for people to see. I mean, I live here in Dublin 8 with Peter. And when we go out walking, you see so many homeless people on the canal and your heart goes out to them. So I think anything that's going to help people to realise that, you know, we have to sort the housing problem. I think that sounds great. Uh, you know, seeing, I don't know if you, you live in Dublin 8, so you know, walking, we used, we take Daisy now and for walks at night in town. The only people left there, it, it just even highlights it more, are, are the homeless people yeah. and drug addicts yeah. and yeah. the vulnerable yeah. part of society that yeah. this pandemic has exposed even more. So I think well done to Claire for writing this. And uh, it must have been really, I, I think it must have been very inspiring to, to work on that film as well. And then um, recently we saw you in the Marco Rowe play The Approach and it streamed online. It was very exciting. Um, and also he wrote the play for, for you, for Gerald Crotty, for Ashing O'Sullivan. It's an amazing um, uh, play, really. I saw that um, somewhere that you said that you have a real passion for stories. You have a real passion for storytellers. And this play is really full of stories, stories that loop back. And then as um, you know, when you're sitting there watching it, you're wondering, which way is this going to go? It keeps you on your toes. I thought it was very interesting the way that looping thing happened and the truth changes every time. Uh, and so you're not sure it, they're not really lying. It's more like they're reinventing the truth, I thought. But uh, anyway, I was just wondering, it must have been such an honour for you to have um, a part written for you. How did you how did you feel about that? And also, what was it like? Um, I, I mean, it must have been such a very different experience doing it as a, as a play which is streamed online. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, firstly, I think it's the greatest gift an actress can get when a, a playwright, especially as gifted as Mark O'Rourke, writes a, a, you know, a play for you. His idea was he, he loved all three of us, but he'd never seen all three of us on stage together. Oh, and wow. so he went, I want to put these three three actresses on stage. So it came out of that. And even interesting, my name is Cora, uh, C, Kathy. Ashleen yeah. is Anna and Dervla is Denise. So even our initials, he stamped it on. Um, I think Mark is one of our greatest playwrights in his subtlety and his his um, his emotional intelligence and that thing mm -hmm. of how we are um, wanting to connect and miss 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 the truth all the time. Or yeah. we're so in need of trying to connect, we will pass on that lie that we've just heard just to keep to keep connected. Like the big scene in the middle where Ash, the two sisters want to connect after all these years and a blatant lie has been told to one and the other yeah. lets it pass just to hold on to this moment. That's how mm -hmm. fragile relationships are and, yeah. you know, and the cries for help and how we, you know, as indeed with my character who doesn't really come to a good end, how, mm -hmm. how subtle our cries can help for help can be and missed as well. So yeah. it, it was a joy to do. Um, we didn't know how we were going to 
it was going to work on camera. And it was extraordinary how it did work. I think the piece really suited it. It's such an intimate piece. Um, we had to obviously uh, um, adhere to COVID procedures um, protocol. So our coffee table, they built it. Um, so we always sat at a coffee table, but they made it two metres wide this time, the way we'd always do two metres apart. Um, that always <laughs> yeah. helps in the loneliness of the characters. We were a bit <laughs> further away from each other in this yeah. void. And an empty theatre would just cameras all around and it was interesting you never yeah. really noticed the cameras they were in the dark and then to feel connected to so many people three over three thousand watched it in those oh my gosh Kathy. it was world. amazing you're using the word intimate a lot and if there was a huge intimacy to it i mean i actually felt i was sitting on my sofa i felt like i was in the theater watching you it was absolutely brilliant to see we got and an amazing email from seven women who watched it in alaska <laughs> Um, it came through the St. Anne's warehouse because it was on that platform in New York. And these women, since COVID, have been watching a play a week. These seven women in Alaska. Yeah. And this yeah. one was the one that their conversation and chat went on for hours afterwards. Wow. And it was wow. their favourite. And you thought that would... What are the chances yeah. of seven women yeah. in Alaska seeing the... And then with the following week, we saw the landmark production of Beckett's Happy Days with Siobhan Maxweeney. So I was just wondering, like thinking ahead now, Cathy, and, and work that might be coming up for you, do you see live streaming as very much a part of, of theatre now in the future? I mean, I think we all know, Wendy, we all want to be in the same room collectively transcending, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And even mm-hmm. more so when we heard Michal Martin on the radio. Um, but I think we have to, it, it, there is, I think this is the only way forward at the moment to try and keep telling stories, to keep yeah. theatre alive. Um, it's not ideal, but something else has happened about it. I think the fact that it's going on live is huge, yeah. that there is yeah. some connection. The fact that we are alive in time at the same time as the people yeah. who are watching, yeah. there is something it's not perfect, but something else is happening, something other. It's going to be interesting to see what it will do to plays and what it will do to what plays will come out of this as well. You exactly. Know? And that a community, a theatre going community can happen like those women in Alaska and they can come and gather and talk for hours after it. It's fantastic. We've loved Netflix and we've loved all the prime videos and everything. But to see a play online is so different. Like myself and my hubby are watching the Druid show tonight, Once Upon oh, a yeah. Bridge. Oh, yeah. And we're watching it with two other friends and other, you know what I mean? We'll all yeah. watch together. And then the National Theatre Live have put all their brilliant plays online. So we're watching Angels in America tomorrow night. Oh, fantastic, Kathy. By the end of it, we'll be sick of theatre. I don't think Cathy Belton you'll ever be sick of theatre I, I just want to say thanks for all that and filling us in and talking about your projects it's great to have you here on Books for Breakfast and now we're actually going to move on to the and, and another exciting part of the podcast the toaster challenge and Peter is going to put the toast in and Cathy you've got an absolutely brilliant book for us I can't wait to hear you talking about it this is the part of the podcast where Cathy is going to talk for two to three minutes about a book that she really really likes so I can see Cathy's getting ready now, geared up for this. So I'll count you down, Cathy. One, two, three, and off you go. My toaster challenge is F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Quickly and very basically, I'll give you a bare plot. Set in Long Island, it tells the story of Jay Gatsby, a self-made millionaire whose wealth we learned was acquired by dubious means. And his relentless pursuit of the love of his life, Daisy Buchanan. I think you got the hint from the dog is even called Daisy here. 
um, who is a wealthy, now married, upper class beauty. He eventually, for a brief time, reclaims her heart, or so he thinks, but she turns out to be a worthless, empty dream who won't leave her husband. This is all told so beautifully through the eyes of a young and flawed narrator, Nick Carraway, a quiet and reflective Midwesterner, um, who moves into a house next door to Gatsby for the summer of 1922 and who I believe truly loved Gatsby. Lads, I adore The Great Gatsby. It's a book I've reread every few years. For a book that's only 200 pages long, it's epic in its analysis of man's relentless search for happiness, power, love, and a damning indictment of the American dream um, and class. It's full of nostalgia, longing, beauty, desire, but more importantly, it's a piece of poetry to read. Like the writing still takes my breath away every time I read it. There's no excessive line. There's no excessive syllable. It's controlled, taught. Um, it's beautiful. I think the last two lines are my favourite two lines I've ever read. Uh, we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And this is profound and perfectly captures our struggle and Gatsby's struggle to achieve our goals, both by trying to transcend and recreate the past I think we as humans can never escape our pasts. The pursuit of a goal moves even farther as we reach farther. And that's it's a metaphor for Gatsby's struggle and the American dream, always reinventing and trying to fulfill our dreams and ambition. We have the biggest hearts with a relentless longing to dream and imagine a better life. I love this book because of Gatsby's capacity to dream and his whisk all for love. Oh, Kathy Belton, you've actually, you've just, the toast is not burnt. <laughs> so you managed to get it all in in time. And also, oh, I, we, we love this book so much as well in our house. Actually, my daughter Freya and I, she's 15, just before lockdown, we went into a bookshop and she herself pulled this down oh, and was reading it. And I was so jealous that she was reading it for the first time. And at the age of 15, it's such a good time, I think. But it's extraordinary it's to think extra- it was written in 1925, 96 years ago. And it's still such a prescient novel, really. I mean, um, actually, last night I was checking um, out old reviews. And when it first came out, the reviews for it in, you know, 1925 were very slow. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, I think as well that Americans saw it as him being kind of critical of, of what was going on. But but gradually it's gained in stature. And it's I'm sure, as you said, it's one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. I, I just think that's when I read Gatsby for the first time, like your daughter at 15. Yeah. And I remember yeah. even then, it's kind of been a diary for me through my life. I remember reading it and all I was interested in was the crazy love story and this amazing love story. Yeah. And then going back to it a few yeah. years later and going, oh, God, help us loving now. This isn't what it's about at all. And yeah, I know. But isn't that that's what's really the sign of a great book? I think that it, it touches you in different ways it, at different stages in your life, you know. And it is true that the writing is so beautiful in it. A movable feast, you know, that Ernest Hemingway wrote in it, he describes Scott Fitzgerald saying to him, I've written a book. And he said, oh, he was being really humble. And it made me think it must be a good book because he was so humble about it. F. Scott Fitzgerald, he wasn't saying, oh, I've written this amazing thing. He just said, I've written a book. And then Hemingway read it and said it was very fine. That's what he said. And it is very fine. But they say the manuscript as well. That it's he just reworked, reworked. I I mean, it is like a piece of poetry. There's no flabby word, anything in it, even his descriptions. I think that description of, you know, Tom and Daisy 
at the end, our Tom, yeah, Tom and Daisy, they were careless people. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whether it was that that kept them together or let other people clean up the mess they had yeah. made. Yeah, he's very good at, at showing the dizzying wealth of the time and how vulgar they were. But Kathy, listen, I you spoke about the last line. I was talking to my father last night, actually, and unprompted, he said, and that last line. So I think it's become one of those very iconic last lines, but it really does show his brilliance as a writer. And I think you're going to treat us to reading the last tiny last bit of of the book, aren't you? Can I be so bold as to just because we're all in lockdown and we can't party? Because I do think we're going to go into the roaring 20s after this. Um, just to okay. give people a little taste of a cocktail party first. Oh, definitely. Can I read that, that little description we have in the first, chapter three, um, where the lights grow brighter as Earth lurches away from the sun. And now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera voices pitches a key higher. The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment the centre of a group, and then excite with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and colour under the constantly changing light. <laughs> Just the way we can hold on to some party, but I will read the last. Okay, so Cathy, we, we've forgotten, we've dispensed with coffee this morning for breakfast. We're having cocktails. That's really, I think Daisy would definitely approve of that. So, okay, well, yeah, we'd love to hear the last section as well. Great. I read the last, the last two, cha- okay. Yeah, it'd be lovely to hear it, Cathy. Thank you. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out that green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then. But that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. That was the superb actress, Kathy Belton, reading a section from the final section from The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And thank you so much, Kathy, for coming in and talking to us about your life, your acting roles, your dog Daisy. <laughs> and um, details of The Great Gatsby will be available as usual on our website, booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Thanks again, Kathy thank Belton. Thank you. It was my absolute pleasure. I love your podcast, by the way, guys. Thank you for oh, spreading yeah. such joy. Praise indeed. <laughs> Cocktails and praise. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to Books for Breakfast 
www.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so we'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>